right? So Romans 8, if you've been with us since September last year, obviously we're, we're making relatively good speed. At least I think so. I don't know if you guys think that. But we are making good progress through, through Romans. Uh, and, uh, and we're actually at one of the most encouraging sections, uh, perhaps in the New Testament. It's one of people's you know, most you know, famous uh, favorite passages. Um, and it, it's there in, in Romans 18 to 30. And you may see the slide there and think, oh, suffering, that's not super encouraging, right? But, but it's what it says about suffering and how it, how it gives us framework uh, as, uh, as disciples to, to make sense of, of suffering uh, and to persevere in the midst of it. And so we'll start there uh, and, and we'll read. We'll, we'll pick up in, in 17, just, just for a little bit of context. So read with me, starting at verse 17. Paul says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through the wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Great, uh, great, great passage of scripture here. Uh, let's have a prayer and then we'll look at some, uh, some points from it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, you know, we thank you so much just to, to, to be here, God. We do thank you for a new venue to meet, God. And we do pray, God, that, that we can you know, obey your, your, your charge to make disciples, God, that over the, 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 the time to come, God, in the future, we can fill this, this room with, with people that want to know you, God, and that want to serve you, Father. We, we pray uh, that you can be with us now as we look at this text, God. We, we pray that you help us, God. Help us to have eyes that see, God. Help us to have uh, hearts that, that, that see and minds that are open to, to how you want us to see suffering, God. We know that, that life has, has many, many challenges, Father. We pray you help us to be a people that, that have our hope properly placed, God. Again, we pray that you can be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is a great, great, great passage. Um, and, uh, and so we'll look at, look at three points here on this text. Uh, first is being that we have, we have no exemption. Right? We have no exemption from, from suffering. There's no grandfather clause. Uh, we don't get a free pass as, as God's children. Uh, there isn't an exemption for it, right? And, 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 and then secondly, we'll, we'll talk a little bit here about what Paul says in the text, of that there's no comparison. 
that our suffering here and now, when, when, when seen in light of the glory that is to come, there is no comparison. Right? That we have something far greater coming, and then the great Aussie phrase of no worries, right? which is kind of a wrap-up of all that we have uh, before us. Amen? So let's look, let's look here, right? No, no exemptions, you know? And uh, again, if you haven't been with us, right? So we're at, you know, kind of an end of a... a if you know the structure of the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 3, you know, Paul's chief aim is, is, is establishing universal guilt. Everyone falls short. Everyone is lost. There is, you know, the, 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 quote, the, quote, the famous quote regarding that is the, is the line is not between us and them in terms of good and bad. The reality is it, it runs down the middle of us. There is aspects of us that are good, but there's also aspects of every single one of us that are not good, that are bad, and we all fall short. And and Paul goes to great lengths in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans to establish that reality, to kind of pin everyone down, whether their background at the time in in the church in Rome that he's writing to uh, was the pagan background of the kind of the Greco-Roman culture, which is almost the same as our culture nowadays, or whether it was Jewish background, right? So people that were quite religious had grown up going to synagogue, who knew the Bible, who knew... Uh, the Ten Commandments, tried to faithfully follow them, went to the festivals, went to the feasts. Paul's point is it doesn't actually matter. Everyone falls short, right? And it has a leveling effect, right? But then we get into some tremendously good news there at the end of chapter 3, right? Uh, at the end of chapter 3, he tells us that, look, that, that, that justification, being, being found uh, right or in, in the correct standing in that cosmic courtroom at the end of time on Judgment Day, uh, that that can be uh, that can happen for everyone, despite the fact that everyone falls short. But it, but the, the the caveat is that you have to put your faith in Jesus. That it's only by realizing, man, my works are not good enough; they won't measure. Uh, but I'm going to trust in Jesus. All right, looking to His work that He's accomplished on the cross, that that enables you to be justified, to be declared righteous in God's sight, and that's tremendously good news. All right, I mean, it frees us from the rat race of good enough. Uh, in pursuit of proving self, right? Uh, you know, and, and then Paul goes on in, in, in chapter four, and he shows us that look, when you when you follow that pattern of of believing in God and having that credited to you as righteousness, you, you're in line with Abraham, and so you become part of God's grander plan of salvation that predates even the Old Testament. In, in regards going all the way back to Abraham, right? Uh, you know, and, and then you get you know great passages like uh, you know chapter five where we talked about. Uh, how, how God gives us many promises that affirm uh, who we are, that we have peace with God, right? that we can approach God with confidence, right? Uh, and how that's helpful to us because we are people that hunger for affirmation. Problem is we look at it for one another rather than from God. right? But if we find it from God, then that really frees us from trying to use one another uh, to feel better about ourselves. Right? So that's tremendously good news. And then you get into chapter 6, and chapter 6 uh, is all about when, when we're buried with him in baptism, we're, we're raised anew. Uh, and so the law has no uh, authority over us anymore because we've died and we've been set free. You know, And in chapter 7, he uses the metaphor of marriage to try to help us grasp just how free we are and that the idea that sin no longer enslaves us or controls us. It's like good news after good news after good news. And then you get to chapter 8, and he tells us, hey, there's no condemnation now for those that are in Christ Jesus. You're, you're free from that. Uh, and on top of that, God has given you his spirit. And that spirit can help govern and control your mind and help your mind to follow God. 
And then even, you know, a couple weeks ago when we were down in a park, we looked at the, the, the middle chapter, mid, middle portion of chapter 8, uh, and, and, and in that portion he talks about how we've been adopted. That God has adopted us into his family and, he, and he's, you know, bestowed on us, uh, you know, glory and honor that, that we could never merit. Now, you think about all that, and you think about all those privileges, you do think, surely I get a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to hardships and suffering. Surely, if I am God's son and daughter, and he's the sovereign God and controls all things and knows all things, surely my life will be easier than, than other people's lives. And of course, you know, if you've been baptized like 10 seconds, you probably realize that's not true. That, that the reality is that, that life is full of suffering. And, and, and even what he says there in verse 17, you know, that, that, that as his children and, and, and as his heirs, uh, you know, if, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. It's a funny way the New Testament often phrases sufferings. Philippians, in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, you know, he tells them that, that it's grace, it's a gift to be able to share in his sufferings. It's kind of a funny thing. I don't, I don't view sufferings and hardships and trials as a gift. Right? But, but again, God's trying to, to, to help us to see that, that, that there's, more, there's more at work here. You know? And, and uh, th- there are no exemptions for us as Christians. God is a, a, a God who, whose love is not dependent on how people respond to him. Sermon on the Mount, when, God, when Jesus is talking about uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving even your enemy, Blessing those who even curse you, praying for those, you know, and choosing to bless rather than curse. Uh, the, the, the right smack in the middle of it, you don't need to turn there, but, but in, in, in the middle of that section of teaching, you get the, the, the part where it says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And, 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 and Jesus is using that as framework to help them understand you, you've got to love even your enemies. Because how does God even deal with everyone? He deals with them equitably. Whether they, whether they believe in him, whether they follow him, whether they, they uh, you know, um, become his disciples, he still is going to treat with equality. All right? And, and, and we've got to remember that when it comes to suffering. That we don't, there's not an exemption for us. Right? Divine love is indiscriminate love, shown equally to good and bad people. Uh, and the same holds true even for suffering. That, that, that though uh, we have phenomenal standing with God, that doesn't exempt us from the hardships and the sufferings and the trials that come, right? Amen? But he does give us hope, right? You know, he says there, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And you think about this from Paul, right? You know, again, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 11, and we looked at, you guys studied First and Second Corinthians a couple years ago. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul details out kind of the sufferings in his life, right? Uh, you know, he, he, he talks about being falsely imprisoned, right? Uh, you know, exposed to death time and time again. Doesn't actually say what in what capacity he was exposed to death, but exposed to death, right? Uh, he talks about five times being flogged by the Jews, receiving the 40 lashes minus one, right? Three times being beaten with rods, once being pelted with stone, three times shipwrecked. He spent a day and a night in the open sea. 
constantly having to move around in danger from rivers, bandits, uh, his fellow people, the Jews from the Gentiles that he was trying to reach out to, uh, whether he was in the city or in the country, a danger, whether he was on land or at sea, in danger. Uh, he's had to deal with, you know, suffering at the hand of false believers. Uh, all the while, through all that, he says he labored and he toiled, uh, often going without sleep, often having hunger and thirst, having no food, been cold, been naked. Uh, and, and on top of all that, he says there, verse 28 and 29 of the letter to the Corinthians, he says, he says that, that daily he feels a pressure of, hey, how's everyone else doing spiritually? Okay, and, and, and it's important to understand who's speaking to us when he says, hey, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing. Because sometimes, you know, if someone comes to you when you're having sufferings, when you're having hardships, and, and their life has kind of been like cupcakes and rainbows, okay, you, you can kind of dismiss them, right? You can kind of shrug them off like, well, you don't know what I'm feeling, right? Uh, and of course, you wouldn't say that, but we think that, and so then we filter what they say. Uh, but we don't have that luxury with Paul. I mean, he's endured things most of us would never, you know, I mean, we're not, not even remotely close, right? I mean, a night and a day in the open sea, right? Now, Mediterranean, amen, and have great whites, right? But, you know, nonetheless, not exactly a fun experience, you know, but, but you know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of challenges. He, he's a man who knew suffering, and yet he still has that position of that he considers our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. I think Paul was a guy who thought a lot about that. I think as a byproduct of suffering, and I think this is one of the reasons why Christianity above and beyond any other philosophy or, or world religion uh, or for sure atheism has the capacity to endure and persevere even in the face of tremendous suffering is hope. If there is no, if there is no God, if, if your worldview is that of, of an absence of, of an overarching uh, God that, that has a purpose and a meaning, uh, then your suffering, you can find no purpose in it. And, and, and the more you meditate on that concept, the reality is, is that there's a, there's a hopelessness that descends on you like a dark cloud. Because it's, it's meaningless. Then. It's, it's just cosmic karma. Your genes are weak, and so you're going to be eliminated. But if there is a God, and, and that God is sovereign, and he has a purpose, then, then that reframes suffering. Not even the sense that, that it gives you hope, which is what we're talking about in terms of the glory. That's, that's the glory that is to come. But even in Romans 5, it talks about how suffering changes us. It enables us to, to, to grow in character. It, it exposes weaknesses and areas in our, in our, in our lives uh, where we can improve and we can become different people. and We can be shaped by them, uh, by suffering rather than destroyed by them. You know, but but to understand that, that, that and a lot of you that have you know, obviously been going to church, you, you know that and you believe that. But but I do think for Paul, there there was an element way beyond character growth, and it was the fact that he thought a lot about the glory that was to be revealed. And he tells the church in Philippi, man, it's it's better for me if I depart and I and I go and and, and can be with Christ, but I'm going to stick around because it's fruitful labor for other people. I mean, that's an interesting thought. 
I mean, how many of us would, would, would you know, could, again, it's not show of hands saying rhetorically, right? Really think that? And I'd rather actually be dead and be in the next life. I don't know, guys. And I think we probably don't think enough about it. We don't think enough about this glory that's going to be revealed. We don't think enough uh, about what, 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 what lies ahead, you know, and, you know, Paul even says that, that creation is subject to frustration, right? That, that, that creation is stuck in this, in this cycle of decay and death, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, unproductivity or you know, a lack of efficiency, uh, you know, and, and that that causes creation to eagerly expect to be remade. Right? I mean, that creation groans waiting to be remade. That's what Paul says there, right? And you think, man, when's the last time I groaned waiting for the next life, right? It doesn't, probably doesn't happen as much as, 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 as it should, right? Um, you know, and I read a book, uh, in, in January that I've read many times before, but I read it because I knew this text was coming up, and, and I recommend reading it. It's called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, and it's an allegorical story, uh, about the next life, and about this idea of the, the glory of the next life, right? And it's a good read. It's not a long read. I think it's under 100, 100 pages, uh, and, it's, and it's worth reading. And C.S. Lewis is obviously a great writer. Uh, it's an easier read than pretty much all of his other books. It's less like mere Christianity and more like screw tape letters, right? Because you can read mere Christianity sometimes and be like, Man, it's like 15 pages for the point. That can be hard to follow, right? Great, the great divorce is not like that, right? You know, but one of the quotes is from, from, from there is, is on the screen here. He says that, and, and it's, I don't know how to really describe it, but, you know, basically it's, it's uh, a guided discussion with uh, angelic-type spirits in the next life that C.S. Lewis is having, all right? Uh, and the spirit is saying to him, that, that is why mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Uh, and, and, and C.S. Lewis, along with his kind of like spirit angelic guide in the next life, is, is, is watching other people have conversations uh, and realizations as they look at their life and they look at the scenarios uh, and begin to see them from a different perspective, from a wider perspective. Right? Uh, one of the other quotes from, from that book is, you know, the, the idea that, you know, we, we, we look at things through a telescope. And so we only see... This, when there's actually this. But it's only in the next life when, when, when this becomes this. But, but we're meant to, in the midst of suffering in this life, understand that, man, our perspective is so narrow. Our perspective is so skewed. And, and, and the magnitude of what awaits us is one that expands and, and, and will enable us to see uh, things from a vastly different perspective. You know, one of the other things that... that, that Paul grasps at, and I say grasp because he's a man, right? Anytime men talk about childbirth, that's usually not, you know, that doesn't go super well, right? You know, but he uses childbirth as it, right? The labor pains of childbirth. And, you know, and you, and you think about, uh, you know, I, I personally haven't given birth, praise God, you know, but, you know, you look at the, you know, and a few of you are pregnant, so, and then pray for, uh, you know, Pray for the pregnant women, you know, but you think about that, that 10 month process or nine month process. Uh, man, there's a lot of pain and a lot of discomfort and a lot of suffering, right? But but it's amazing how, you know, again, I'm over 
simplistic and I'm a man, right? But in an instant, in a sense, it all kind of is gone. As you have a little baby there, right? And Paul's kind of trying to use that concept as much as a man can safely use that concept, uh, you know, to try to get us to think about our sufferings and our hardships in that way. That, that every time we encounter a suffering and a hardship, man, it's like, it's like a contraction. And, and the more you get, you know, the harder it gets and the more challenging it gets, the more you know that that, that incredible moment of joy is right there. That is an indicator of, of actually something greater coming. Not, not a, a downward spiral of, you know, God hates me and he's disciplined me. Quite the opposite. Great joy is, is right around the corner. Right? And the suffering in some sense, you know, uh, is even necessary to, to detach our hope from things of this life and cast that anchor into the next life. Right? Purposeful. You know, and, and we've got, we got to understand and think a lot more about that glory that is to be revealed. The glory that awaits us. So much of our lives are here and now, guys. When's the last time we really contemplated and thought about the age to come? Amen? Third and lastly, there's a lot in this text that Paul tells us that should help us really have a no worries type of attitude, right? I mean, verse 28, everyone loves this verse. If you don't love this verse, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to help you. I'm not sure how to explain it in a way uh, that's going to make you love it. Well, it's just a phenomenally good verse, right? You know, we know that in, in, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And it's kind of cool even to point out that Paul says, look, we know this. We know this. Earlier in the chapter, there in, uh, you know, verse 26 and 27, right? It says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we do not know what we ought to pray about, but the Spirit himself helps us, right? And, and he's talking about those moments of suffering when you don't know what to pray, right? Do you pray that God changes you, or do you pray that God changes the person that's causing you suffering, or the situation, or the circumstance, right? Those, situa- those times we don't know. We don't know what we should pray about, right? And, and there's, a, there's a, a great deal of uncertainty at times in life, especially in suffering, right? What is the purpose? Is, you know, is there a grander purpose, Right? You know, and, and those are unknowns in a sense. But Paul does know that no matter what is happening, if you love God and you learn to see hardships and suffering as he says to see them, right? Because it has to do with love, right? And if you obey him, because love and obedience go hand in hand uh, in the Bible, you can't say you love God and then not obey him. He's like, well, that really actually shows you don't love him. Right, but but he says, look, you know, for for those who love that that love God in anything and everything, God will make it turn out for good. Do you believe that, though? Do you really believe that? Because it's hard in the midst of it. It's hard in the midst of suffering, you know, and challenges in life to, to, to believe that. But, but if we can step back and understand that that is a certainty. And, and, and you're hearing that from a guy named Paul who, it's not like he had an absence of suffering. He had a lot of suffering. But, but he was able to, to frame things in a way uh, that, that, that gave him hope. It enabled him to endure. It enabled him to grow. Right. One of the ways he does that for the Church of Rome, which is quite quite interesting, and we'll get into it more in the latter chapters, you know. But you know, Paul in, in, in nine, ten, and eleven will talk a lot about the Jew-Gentile relationship, 
Okay, and a lot of people think that was maybe one of the overarching, you know, issues that Paul was trying to tackle. And he probably picked it up in the first eight chapters because he says all, all of the time. All. He uses purposely an inclusive term to try to, you know, he's trying to, to, to bridge a, 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 you know, a gap between the Jew and the Gentiles, right? Because if you know history, uh, the Roman emperors eventually got kind of ticked at the Jews and they expelled all the Jews uh, out of Rome, uh, you know, and they were out of Rome for, for a few years, and then they all came back, right? And, and so you ha- had a, a church in Rome that probably started with uh, Jewish uh, believers who had gone to the Jewish festival, you know, in Acts 2, you have 3,000 people get baptized, uh, they hang out there for a while, they come back to Rome, uh, they started, you know, they start the church there in Rome, and it grows, and then all of a sudden they're all kicked out, and so then it's just a Gentile church, Right? Uh, and then all, and, and then you you know you read the book of Acts. The people who tend to persecute the church the most was the Jewish people, right? Uh, you know, and, and so you imagine, man, you know, Gentile. It'd be easy to have some hostility towards the Jewish people, right? Because there, there there was a lot of persecution that came their way as a, as a byproduct of that, you know. And 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 eventually, all these Jewish Christians are able to come back into the church of Rome. And, and so Paul thinks there was a you know. Or, Paul was trying to write to try to, you know, smooth some of that friction, right? But but Paul looks at the whole the whole situation, even the persecution. And again, the Jews flogged this guy twice, that close to the point of death, right? But he tells the the, the church in Rome later on, you know what? You got to understand that you are obligated to the Jewish people to 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 uh, to them, because their stubborn hardness is actually what drove the gospel out into the Gentile world, which enabled your salvation. Right? Now, again, that's coming from a guy who's been, you know, nearly killed by the Jews several times in his life. But he's saying, hey, look, here's how you need to frame that, though. That if they weren't that stubborn and obstinate against the, against the gospel, then, then you Gentiles would never even have heard the gospel. That's, that's, that's a different way of seeing his situation. But Paul really believed that, you know what, in everything, God's going to work for the good of those who love him. That should give us tremendous confidence. That should give us tremendous confidence when, when life has many challenges, right? One of the other very you know, interesting verses here in, in, in this text that we read is the final verses that we read there, 28 to 30. Uh, and it's called the golden chain, right? You can see why, right? Uh, starting here in verse 28, it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose, right? So that's the one we just talked about. For those, verse 29, God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. All right? Uh, and theologians call this the, the golden chain, right? From foreknowledge to predestination to called to justified to glorified, right? Uh, and if you're a Calvinist, this is like one of your most favorite passages, right? Because it's kind of the most, you know, perhaps solid ground you could stand on and, and argue a concept of predestination, okay? Uh, Sunday afternoon, maybe a little bit tired. Bear with me, okay? Right? <laughs> Difficult concept here, hopefully made a little bit more simple, right? I, I mean, I'm not a Calvinist, okay? I, I, I think, I think uh, mankind has choice, has free will, right? Uh, the Bible repeatedly gives people choice, 
even from the beginning, God reasons with 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 Cain and Abel, with, with Cain before he kills his brother Abel. You know, sin is crouching at your your door; it desires to have you. You must master it, right? If Cain was predestined in the sense that we hear predestined, uh, why would God give him choice, right? Uh, so much of the Bible, you know, makes it very clear that God is just, right? Uh, and, and what you know, how I understand this passage is, is you got to understand what it begins with. Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, right? We, we, everything in our life is shaped by time. To think about an absence of time is difficult. Right? And if you read this, C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, uh, he talks about that. Right? And, and one of the quotes in there is, is again, it's somebody who's railing and bitter about the suffering in their life uh, and, and what happened, uh, you know, and, and, the, the, the spirit, angelic being, reasons when there is no other day. All days are present now. Th- this moment contains all moments. And C.S. Lewis is trying to grasp and help us to grasp, I think, as we think about the, the, the age to come, this reality that there is no more time in the next life. Time is, a created, is part of creation. Right? Eternity is an absence of time. Right? And, and, and God exists outside of time, right? I mean, the Bible calls him the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He, he repeatedly throughout the Bible uh, speaks, you know, of himself as what? I am. I am the God of, of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God, you know, I mean, these people lived a uh, long time apart. But he relates to them all in the present tense because he exists outside of time. He sees the beginning and the end. He knows all things before they uh, come into existence. He says that even about our lives. Before you were born, I knew you, right? Because he he stands outside of time, you know? And and, and the the golden chain is a golden chain because God in his foreknowledge knows all things. He knows that, that, that with endless choices, right? Uh, an endless opportunity, some are going to choose to rebel and some are going to choose to follow. Right? And those that, that choose to follow and, and put their faith in him, uh, there is guarantees that come because he sees the beginning and the end simultaneously, right? And, and, and so in some sense, one of the heavy emphasis in this part of the text is Paul helping us to see that, that God is, is faithful. God is not going to change his mind. He doesn't shift like people. Right? He doesn't shift like people. In the end of the chapter, we'll look at, ne- or, you know, not next week, because Ed's here next week, uh, though I could make Ed preach on this text next week, right? But, but you know, he talks, you know, he'll reason out, uh, you know, verse 38. L- look with me there real quick. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That when it comes to, 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 to God and his relationship to, towards you, there is nothing on his side of the covenant that is going to prevent that, that, that relationship from continuing on. And that doesn't, doesn't mean we might. And some do. Some do turn and walk away. Some do renounce their faith. Right? But, but the emphasis is on this idea that they, that that, that on God's end, this is, these are guarantees. 
God's not going to wake up one day and, and, and say, hey, Scotty, your baptism is invalid. Change my mind. You hadn't repented in the way I say repent. You know what I mean? He's not going to do that. Right? God speaks, he makes promises, and he delivers. That's, that's a pretty big concept in the Bible. Right? And Paul's trying to help us to see that, that that is how God operates. And so that should give us tremendous confidence that no matter what life throws at us, God is going to come through in the end. Amen? You know, and, 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 and so you think about suffering, you think about whatever happens in life, man, the Bible gives you the capacity, God's Word gives you the capacity to see whatever comes your way in a light, in a, in a perspective that enables you to flourish even in the hardest times. To, to persevere and have endurance and have hope even when all the facts seem to stack against having hope, Right? Because the reality is, because hard things come, that doesn't mean that God is necessarily punishing you, though sometimes our consequences are given back to us. But even that is done for a restoration, re- restorative purpose, right? And, and, and so, we, you know, understanding, man, I'm not exempt from it. Hard times are going to come. I'm going to die just like everyone else is going to die, barring Jesus' return, right? And that can give us hope, right? And, and to know that in those dark moments and those challenging moments, man, there's a glory that awaits you that it's not even honestly worth comparing what you think is a problem here and now, it's going to be nothing in comparison to what will reach you. Not even close. right? And because God's going to work for the good of, of, of you, because you love Him, and any and everything, man, you can, that's no worries. No worries what happens. I'm going to learn and I'm going to grow and I'm going to move forward because God is faithful. Because He's going to begin the process, their justification, and He's going to see it through. To glorification. Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand and sing one final song together. Our Father, we, uh, you know, we thank you. We, we thank you that you enable us to, to see above and beyond the here and the now, God. And we know that even with that, that perspective, God, it is limited in so many ways, God. And it's limited by time, God. We, we can't always see clearly your, your hand or your purpose or your plan, and, and you... You know, obviously don't even, you know, fill us in on it, God, a vast majority of the times, God. We pray, God, you help us, God. Help us to not lose hope, God. We incorrectly think, God, that that, that being, you know, your son or your daughter somehow makes us exempt from hardships, God. Help us to see that that's not not the fact. That's not reality. That suffering comes comes on us all, and, and your son is proof of that, God. We pray, God, you help us to be a people that think often, of the age to come, God. To be a people that, that long for that day, God. To, to imitate creation, God, and eagerly expect uh, and eagerly await that day to come, God. And to long for that day to come, God, when uh, you know, you'll peel back the, the sky as a scroll, God. And that true glory, true reality will, will be revealed, God, and that we will be remade, God. We pray you help us, God. Help us to, to find hope in that, God in those challenging, challenging times in the life, God. And we pray, God, for, for our lives day in and day out here, God, that we can you know, have a, a, a carefreeness, God, as we know that, that you are sovereign, you are in control, and that in anything and everything, you're, you're going to use it to accomplish your will and to bring goodness into our life, Father. Again, we thank you and we, we praise you. Ask Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Let's all stand together and, uh, and sing, There's Not a Friend.